Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Norman Lebrecht. Norman is a Whitbread Prize-winning novelist, as well as a highly regarded music critic and cultural commentator. He's the author of a dozen books on music, among them The Maestro Myth and Maestro's Masterpieces and Madness. He is, it would be fair to say, unafraid of venturing bold opinions. That much is already clear from the subtitle of his new book, Why Mahler? It reads, How One Man and Ten Symphonies Changed the World. The book itself blends biography, told in the urgent present tense, personal recollections and travelogue, and fascinating anecdotes and asides, to get at the essence of Mahler the man and the musician. And throughout, the question, why Mahler, propels us forward. Why the huge popularity after years of posthumous neglect? Why the sense of connection that so many feel on encountering his music? And why does music a century old still seem to speak to us so urgently today? My first question, though, was a more straightforward one. I wanted to know when Norman had first encountered Mahler's music. When I reached the point in my life, my late 20s, where people start to look for spiritual satisfactions in music, where it's not just the happy tune and the one that gets the girl and the one that trains your heart springs. When you're looking for something deeper, for something to engage with life's big questions of long-lasting love and, and, and conception and child and illness and death and, and, and all of those things. Orchestral music began to speak to me in a very big way, and I would go to a lot of concerts. And I, I had trouble finding out what was going on because I'd never studied music properly. And most of the reviews and the books that I read were written in musicological language, which was really intended for other musicologists, uh, and didn't relate in any way to the life that I knew. And then I picked up Alma Mahler's book, Memories and Letters, published in 1939 in German, at the time when she thought that her husband was going to be completely forgotten. He'd been obliterated in all the lands occupied by Germany, which was most of Central Europe. He was uh, not just unpopular, but derided and mocked in the United States by the people who controlled music there. He'd been wiped off the map, and she writes this book in which her ambivalent is so passionate that I felt I needed to know how somebody could could uh, could have such strong and divided feelings about someone, a musician, a composer to whom she'd been married. And from that point, I started listening to the music and was enthralled because what I was receiving was not the very direct discourse that I heard from Beethoven, Brahms, Bruckner, Schumann, Stravinsky, everybody else. The composer has something on his mind. He tells you what he wants to say through the orchestra. With Mahler, he's telling me several things at the same time. He's giving me, at one and the same time, an intellectual challenge and emotional catharsis. How can that work? All head and heart working together and working against each other and more. And so really from that point, from about the time that I was 30, half a life ago, um, I just kept asking, why Mahler? Why Mahler? What, what on earth? I No, no. I asked, why Mahler? What, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this here? What, is it, what, what does it mean? And then, why Mahler? Why this one of all composers? Why is he absorbing so much of my attention? Why is he speaking to me of the things that really matter in my life? One thing that you emphasize in the book is the fact that in his music he can he can be saying something but also be saying its opposite or there there is no clear 
easy, single interpretation. Things can be happening at different levels in terms of the meaning that's being conveyed to the listener. The most important thing that Mahler does, he does immediately on becoming a symphonist, he does it in his first symphony, and he, that is to introduce the concept of irony into music. Uh, irony is a literary device. It is essentially, if you follow Dr. Johnson's definition, saying one thing and meaning another. It's a way of indicating an alternative meaning to what it is you're expressing. And it's a tremendously useful thing to do in a difficult social situation. And of course, in an impossible political situation where you can't speak out, but you have to sort of pay obeisance to the political correctness while actually holding the other message underneath so that people understand you don't really mean what they think you're hearing. Mahler introduces us to music in the first symphony. He does it in a most ingenious way by taking what appears to be a nursery rhyme, putting it into the minor. We know, we know it in English and French as Frère Jacques, in German it's Bruder Martin, putting it into the minor, converting it into a funeral march, sending it thudding along its way to the cemetery and then twisting it around so that it becomes a kind of revelry, a party, an orgiastic dance. And there are all there are these three ideas that are working together with each other and against it. What is this? Is it a child's funeral? Is it a party? Is it is it military? Is it civil? What's going on here? Beneath all of this, Mahler is giving you his own story, which is that as a boy, he saw his brothers and sisters carried in coffins out of the back door of the family pub, while in the front of the pub, people were still singing and drinking and having a good time. And he's yelling a protest at you. He said, these, 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 are, these are children. These are my brothers and sisters. You can't discard these lives. 55% of children died under the age of five in the, in, in the part of Europe where, where, where he was brought up. It's still an intolerably high number in many parts of the world. Mahler is speaking up for the child and saying every life, no matter how young, no matter how small, no matter how old, has value. He's speaking of, 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 of that value at both ends. The ways that we begin life nowadays in a test tube quite often, and the ways that we end it nowadays by a doctor's decision to flick a switch. The essential value of life is what comes into Mahler's first symphony, but he doesn't call his first symphony life. He doesn't get up on a soapbox and start preaching or ranting. He doesn't start a blog. He uses this vehicle of irony to give you parallel messages and the message will become more complex, more multilinear as that particular movement progresses. And he's saying to you, think about it. And at the same time, he's saying to you, feel it, feel the pain, feel the rage, do something. Now, tell me, Norman, about the importance of his Jewishness, because one of, one of the most shocking things in the book is reading just how flagrant, blatant the anti-Semitism was in the in the press in Vienna, and also looking ahead. I mean, Adolf Hitler has a small walk-on part in the book, but we're only a few decades away from you know from from terrible cataclysm. Tell tell me about his relationship to to, to Judaism. 
Mahler wouldn't have been Mahler without his being Jewish. He wouldn't have been born in the place that he was. He wouldn't have moved to the town that he did without there having been restrictions on where Jews could live in Central Europe and what trades they could follow and what languages they could speak and how they used those languages. And his grandparents, for instance, were unable to marry, to have a civil marriage because there was only a quota a fixed number of Jews who were allowed to have a civil marriage, so they had to live officially in sin, although they had a religious Jewish wedding. These were the humiliations that the Jews suffered in Europe through many, many centuries, and it was only the slight easing of these restrictions that allowed Mahler to move from a godforsaken village called Kalisht or Kalishta into a slightly larger town called Iglau or Yilava and to grow up there. Being Jewish was innate to Mahler. Uh, going to the synagogue was innate. His father was chairman of the synagogue education committee. He knew Hebrew. He had a bar mitzvah. None of these things had been reported before. Nobody has actually followed Mahler's ancestry, who has any knowledge of Judaism or Hebrew, or most importantly, Yiddish, which was the lingua franca of his parents and his family, and almost certainly the first language that he heard. And Yiddish has a very, very particular type of irony. It has a very particular way of saying one thing and meaning another. It's a language of the oppressed. It's a language of people who have to hide their feelings and their dealings from the host community. And so they develop this kind of secret code between them, which is a linguistic code and it's an expressive code. Almost any phrase that you say in Yiddish can, by changing the inflection, mean it's very opposite. Almost any phrase in Mahler can do the same. So it is, it, it's absolutely a part of him. He knew it. He was never in the slightest bit ashamed or disowning of it. He always presented himself as a Jew, even after he converted, converted to Roman Catholicism in order to get a job at the Vienna court opera. To be a court official, you had to be Catholic. He did the necessary in order to be that. But in coming out of the church, he said to a passing friend who said, what are you doing in there? He said, I've changed my shirt. The inner man is untouched by all of that. He was a Jew in his very, very direct dialogue with God, which is never mediated by priests or any other kind of minister. And he's a Jew in some of the phraseology of his music, which can be traced back to Hebrew and liturgical cadences. That doesn't mean he is a Jewish composer. A Jewish composer is something very narrow, like an English composer. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a limiting thing. But he's a composer who is Jewish, and his Jewishness is important to him being a composer and to expressing himself in the way that he does. How difficult is it to grasp the man's character? I was, I was struck by the recurrence of the comparison of him to a flame, to something that was burning. That seemed to come up again and again. Alma, his wife, said, if you get too close, you'll get burnt. And that, that energy, that sort of burning energy, seemed to characterise him, even when he was ill. You know, there's still something about yes. the intensity yeah. of his feeling and everything. So how difficult was it to try and grasp the, the nature of the man? And the energy is terrifying. It's, it's all-consuming. And you think, where, where does all that come from? Except perhaps from his own acknowledgement that life may be short and that he needs to cram an awful lot into it and that he mustn't waste a minute. He never wastes a minute. In his walk, his afternoon walk from home to the opera house, he makes sure that he's accompanied by professors from the university who can clue him in on the latest advances in agronomics or history or philosophy or whatever. He needs to have his mind stocked all the time. He doesn't have an idle moment. And these 
are terribly difficult people to deal with. We know some of them around us. They tend to be borderline manic depressive and they are impossible to live with. But together with this intensity is this really childlike charm. There's a boyishness to Marla. There's something that makes you want to stroke his cheek. There's something that makes you want to hear what he has to say and know that if you were to tell him about your troubles, he would listen. He would actually listen. You think, if Beethoven came knocking at your door, or Mozart or Schumann or anybody, you wouldn't know what to say to them. You'd feel so removed. But if Marla happened to be sitting opposite you at the dinner table, You'd be completely absorbed. You'd be firstly absorbed in the man, in his aura, in his magnetism. You'd be absorbed in what he's saying. And you'd be absorbed by his interest in you because his... And we have this in so many different testimonies from young people that he's, his eyes sought them out. He wanted to know, you know, what what's ticking? What are you reading? What, 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 what's being published? What, what have you seen? Have you been to the theatre? Have you been to a gallery? What... What's going on in the world? That sort of thing. You see this sometimes among the most impressive conductors. They will walk into a rehearsal room with a strange orchestra and they'll pick somebody out in the back row and say, oh, uh, Smithson, Smithson, isn't it? Yes, yes, of course. We did, um, what was it we did? We did, uh, we did the Shostakovich second in Milwaukee. And of course, the whole orchestra sits up and thinks, well, how on earth did he know the second tuba player? <laughs> Mahler had that way of, of embracing everybody around him. And I think he must have been quite a compelling character to know. One can almost hardly wait for the afterlife when one gets a chance to meet him. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite touching, I thought, the way that he really is champions too strong a word he champions the music of Arnold Schoenberg although he admits freely he doesn't really understand it but he's still supportive of what he's trying to do I think that's an amazing relationship uh, Schoenberg is incredibly rude to Mahler he's dismissive he's loud he's his music is is doesn't sit easily in Mahler's ear and he fidgets sometimes to to hear it he can't understand it on the page but he has a sense that Schoenberg might be the future. He sees Schoenberg as the struggling young musician that he once was, and he's prepared to back a hunch. He th thinks this young man clearly needs support from someone, and he supports him in all sorts of, of, of furtive ways. He actually arranges to buy his paintings anonymously so that he'll have enough food on the table for his family. And he encourages him to do what he thinks is right, just to go his particular way. And Schoenberg, has his input to Mahler. Mahler begins to listen, begins to understand. Nobody understood this, the Seventh Symphony when Mahler first produced it. He did it in Prague in 1908. Everybody came out of it bewildered. The one person who got it on first hearing was Arnold Schoenberg. He heard the modernism of the piece. He heard how it was possible to do things with the guitar and mandolin that, that operated at the very edge of conventional tonality. And, and these are instruments that crop up all the time in Schoenberg's works. He heard also other frictions and other forms. He thought, yes, composing in five movements is much better than in four. All sorts of things. Schoenberg got Mahler, and Mahler starts to get Schoenberg in the 10th symphony, where the fence 
between tonality and atonality disappears. disappears. Mahler is no longer working in any clear tonal signature. And you can see that he's beginning to share a world with this, this, this young, turbulent, often intensely unpleasant protégé. Alma Mahler is another very big personality that walks the pages of the book. You describe it at one point as a fame-seeking fabulist, so I guess that, that, that indicates a bit of where you're coming from. How complex a character is she to, to try to capture on the page? She's much less difficult than Mahler because she's less creative. She's non-creative. Mahler was hopeless with women. He had his mother fixation. He adored his mother. He saw her brutalised by his father. He was powerless to do anything about that. So that diminished in a certain way his self-worth as a man. Here I am, unable to protect the woman that I love most, who is my mother. And it shadowed all of his relationships. And it may explain why he had to marry a woman who was barely half his age. He was uh, 41 and she was 22. Alma was very bright daughter of an artist who had died young. She knew that her mother was not faithful to her father. She knew that the sexual mores of society, the official sexual mores, didn't apply to artists and to people in her family. She had that window of beauty that some young women get just at the very end of adolescence and, and, and the beginning of their maturity. She had a period where she was irresistible where clearly, and you can't tell this from photographs, but clearly men would follow her on the street. She was, she was a magnet. She radiated something and it didn't last. <laughs> but Marla was smitten by whatever it was that she emitted, fell in love with her. She fell in love with somebody who was more creative than her father and who could give her instantly a position in society that was the wife of the director of the Vienna Opera. She was suddenly going to be, there was no empress anymore. She would be the most important woman in Vienna overnight. That she couldn't pass up. So I, she's not that complex to understand, but her relationship with Mahler is never easy. Sexually, it's never easy. We know this from her diaries. And Alma told screeds upon screeds of lies in her memoirs. She doctored the letters that she published. She muddied the trail in every possible way. And the one thing we can be grateful to her for is that she kept her diaries and they're in a vault in Philadelphia. And you can go and consult them and compare them to her published tastes and then see where the real truth might lie between them. So she was honest with herself. And in Dear Diary mode, we get to know who the real Alma is, and she's a very troubled woman. She's having dreams about snakes crawling inside her. She's having torments about killing her children. She accuses Marla of predicting the death of children. She, it's actually her own a psychosis that is at work. She would have had to spend a good few years with Freud in order to get rid of these things. So she's, she's complicated in the way that entrails are complicated. They go in and round, in and out and round and round and round and round and round. But, but uh, she's quite easy to read in the way that a stomatologist can read the entrails. <laughs> you must sometimes meet people who are Mahler agnostics. Mm. How, what do you suggest to them as the best way to approach Mahler? Because they see people who have been bitten and smitten and mm. perhaps don't yet share it. How, so how, how would someone who's open-minded but not yet converted get themselves in the right place to really 
begin to understand your enthusiasm for him and other people's? A lot of people have a resistance to psychoanalysis. How would you persuade them to go into analysis? It, it, it's not an easy question because it, it really depends on the individual and where you think their sensibilities might lie. I think all that I would say is just listen. Just try to listen without prejudice. Just go on your own at some point to a Mahler symphony. Try and see if you can find three empty seats and sit in the middle. <laughs> so that you're not influenced by those around you and just see if you feel anything and if you don't leave it and come back some other time may not have been a good performance you may not have been in the right frame of mind for it i think everybody's affected by Mahler in different ways i think if you wanted to hear Mahler's breathing to hear the way in which he is encouraging you to find a more organic way of taking in breath and living, then I think one would listen to the finale of the Third Symphony, the first of his great adagios, or the third movement, the adagio of the Fourth Symphony. And there you can feel perhaps two hearts beating together, and you may be able to feel something that he's trying to communicate. On the other hand, yeah, maybe you should just listen to the opening of the Sixth Symphony, to a movement that seems to predict the destruction of the world. Um, I know many people who, who, who felt that what Mahler is saying here is very close to what Jeremiah was saying in Jerusalem when he's walking around and saying, repent before it's too late or the city will be destroyed. That's what Mahler is saying to his society and his world. He's saying, you are Vienna with its whole false masks with its shine über sein, appearance over being, was always the most mm. important thing in Vienna. It still is. It still is. It's not what you are, it's how you look. And Mahler is saying, for God's sake, stop this, or there's going to be a world war. Is that the piece for which Alma Mahler came up with a very nice formula, Anticipando Musizia? I thought that was a, right. the future That's rendered right. into music. That's I thought right. it was a very nice encapsulation of that. That's exactly it. And, and he, she said, that that's what Mahler called it. That's right. That's right. So he's he's not predicting the future like somebody with tea leaves. But he's he's analysing the present and saying, if we don't get some sense into our world, we're going to face absolute disaster. And then when you ask why Mahler in 2010, and you put that statement you suddenly see why Mahler becomes so relevant, why Mahler is so now, why he's so much the composer of our times. If we don't sort out what we're doing with the climate, what we're doing with the environment, what's going to happen? If we don't stop spending more than we earn, if we don't stop engaging in pointless wars and start talking to each other, if we don't respect each other as parallel cultures, if we don't, in our now multicultural cities, create spaces for dialogue between many different civilizations, then we're heading for exactly the disaster that Mahler predicts in the Sixth Symphony. And then, like Jeremiah, when the worst happens, he's there with the consolations of the ninth. <laughs> so Mahler, uh, Mahler is here, he's with us now. It, it, it is when you really feel that when he said, my time will come, 
He didn't know when, and he didn't know how. But it's come, and it's now. Norman Labrest. Why Mahler, How One Man and Ten Symphonies Changed the World, is out now in hardback. You can find out more about Norman's books by going to faber.co.uk, and you can read his blog by visiting normanlebrecht.com. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for more conversations with authors. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.